Good morning. Go to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 7 through 21 today. We'll have the words on the screen. If you don't have your Bible with you today, and as always, I will encourage you to have your scriptures with you in hand. You can mark them up, have them there. So we have got some ground to cover today. So let's dive right into the work, shall we? Everybody good? All right, here we go. Beginning in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4, we find these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and over fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together and just ask God to illuminate his word for us. So Father, we, it's true every week that we, uh, apart from your spirit, cannot comprehend your word, not to the depth uh, which we need to, but particularly today, You know my prayer this week, and I'm gonna pray again today, Father, is that you would illuminate the uniqueness and majesty of your love for the people in this room now, and for our neighbors, and for our friends, that you would help us to understand how great your love is, qualitatively better, different than any other kind of love. Help us to see it. Holy Spirit, would you do that today? And and for each individual, in just the way they need to be perhaps corrected in their understanding of your love or refreshed in your love, whatever it is, would you bring that about so that they would be uh, more deeply enamored with a God like you? Only you love the way you love. It helps to see it and know it. Would you uh, now take your word and illuminate it for us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So see if you agree with this statement. I don't know if you will or if you won't, but I was pondering this week and I was just thinking to myself, what is it that causes the greatest turmoil in life? What is it that really hurts us the most? And as I thought about that, I I think the answer might be uh, when we have an expectation of love that goes unmet. Now, like the diagnosis in the doctor's office, that's a big deal, right? Those moments really hurt. But I don't think they probably hurt as much as when we love and that love is betrayed, 
or when we feel a need to be loved and that love goes unmet, when we have a withholding father, an absent mother, uh, when we have a friend who betrays us, whatever it may be, I think it's those moments where love is not what love should be that hurt the most. Do you think about that. I wonder if you agree or disagree. You don't have to tell me right now, but just you can ponder that for a moment. And I was thinking about this as we come to this text today, which I think pound for pound, okay, is right up there with Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in an explanation of what God's love is like. I mean, you know what I mean when I say pound for pound. I, I think it hits as hard as just about any other text, and there's lots of other good ones, but if I had to put them up there to, to go, how do we understand the love of God, this text would be right there at the top of the list with a, with a couple others in thinking about the nature of God's love and what it's like. And my goal simply today is that we would be amazed by God's love. I mean, we're gonna try to uh, hold the, the diamond of God's word up and just hold it to the light and, and just keep turning it and turning it and turning it so that we see as many nuances and facets of his love shining through that word, because there are just, I'm gonna let you in a little secret, there are 13 points to the sermon today, all right? So we're gonna hit each one just kind of briefly, and then I'm gonna expect that the Holy Spirit's gonna take one and just land it on your heart. And you're gonna spend, I pray, the week, maybe the rest of your life, pondering, what does this mean? How do I experience this? When I get into conversations with folks who are in a place of unbelief. You don't, you don't believe, and some, maybe some of you here today, you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is and don't believe what he's done is you know, a redeeming work for you. I often will find that those conversations are in places of intellectual difficulties, right? So it's like, I, what about this problem of evil or this issue or that issue? But as we get further into the conversation, the thing that I find is that those intellectual objections are real. They're not inconsequential and they're not imaginary. Uh, but the further into those conversations you go, and you can give perfectly reasonable explanations for why this or why that, but at the end of the day, sometimes when you dig, what you find is that there's really an experiential reason sort of sitting underneath the intellectual reason. There's some place where love was unmet. There's some hurt that was experienced maybe in the church, maybe through the hypocrisy of Christians like we talked about last week. And it's really that experience, it's that hurt that is the cause of the unbelief at its root. And the intellectual objections, while not unreal, are sort of added on top if you will. Have you experienced this? And so here's my suggestion, particularly for those of you who are in that place of unbelief as it relates to Jesus, is that those intellectual objections, they matter, but my guess is what you need more than anything is an experience the love of God. What will actually break through to you is if God would grant you an experience of his love that would be so rich and deep and high and wide and long, as Ephesians chapter four talks about, that you would that you would sort of then come to your intellectual objections in a way that there's an openness to receiving the answers to those that's not there right now because the experience of love has not yet seized hold. And so I wanna invite you to consider what God's word says about how amazing his love is. And for those of you who are in faith, who are in belief in Jesus, my prayer is that he would refresh you with an understanding of his love and perhaps maybe cause to land on you an understanding of his love that you've never had before. Because I promise you, his love is beyond your wildest imagination. And so we're gonna look at the text today. We're gonna hit these things together and look at them. So are we good? Everybody good? All right, so here's what John has done. And just to remind us of this, 
what he did in chapter three, when I read in chapter four, verse seven, when I said, hey, love one another, beloved, love one another, that should have sounded really familiar if you've been with us, because in chapter three, he's already given us that command. He already said it, and he sort of harped on it. He spent some time on it. He said, love one another. And then he gave specific ways to love each other. He's like, if you have the world's goods and you see someone in need, your brother in particular, and you don't meet that need, you're not loving them. So he gave us these really practical ways to love. And then he took a break from that, love one another, and then he comes to last week, we saw this like, but test the spirits, like be discerning. So he spent some time talking about spiritual discernment because love and wisdom and discernment, they, they go hand in hand. They're not counter to one another. We don't just say, well, we love, therefore we don't discern anything. We, we wanna be deeply discerning people. But now he returns again to love. It's almost like it's really important. Love one another, be discerning spiritually. Guess what? Love one another. And so as we, and then, Instead of saying, well, here's how you love each other, you know what he does? He just spends the whole chapter going, here's what God's love is like. And then we saw in verse 11, verse 11 where he says, if God loved us this way, then we also ought to love one another. In other words, what he's saying is, is your love like this? So we're gonna look at each of these facets of God's love, and then at the end of that, we're gonna ask the question, is my love like that? Will you ask that question with me? Is my love like that? A little spoiler alert, the answer's gonna be No a good bit, but the good news is it can become more like that, and we'll see why, okay? So let's look together. Starting in verse seven and eight, the first thing we see is that God's love doesn't change, which is awesome. Look at verse seven and eight again. He says this, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. He's its source, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, it's love is the evidence. It's the evidence that you actually know God, and then he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because, what does he say? God is love. Now that phrase doesn't mean that, uh, that love is the sum total of what God is. God has more aspects to his nature than just love, yes? He is just and wise and truth and all these things, right? So it doesn't mean that love is the sum total of what God is, but here's what it does mean, is that everything that is love is defined by and determined by God. He encapsulates all that love is. There is nothing that love is that is outside of God's nature. Everything that love truly is, God is. Does that make sense, yes? So what he's saying then is love flows from the very nature, from the very heart of God. It's not difficult for God to love. He doesn't have to, when he loves you, he does not have to go get it from the store, buy it and purchase it so that he then has it to give. He possesses it in his very nature. It is his. He is the maker of it, the creator of it, the founder of it. He defines what it is. And here's the beauty of that. Because God does not change. With him, there is no shifting shadow. There is no movement. It means his love never changes. Now, you may have at points felt like, I feel less loved, or had moments where I feel so loved. But that's your experience of love based upon the human condition. It's not because his love grew for you in that moment or shrank for you in that moment. Isn't that, does that make sense? His love never shrinks and it never grows because his love for you is perfect. It does not move, ebb and flow. Now we as humans experience an ebb and flow because of our comprehension of love, quite frankly, but his love doesn't change. It is always the same. So if that's true, and I am to love with a love that's like God's love, here's the question for us then. How consistent is my love? 
How consistently do you express love to those God brings in your path? Is it more erratic? Is it based on how well the day is going? Or is there a consistency to your love? That just like the ocean tide, the waves crashing on the shore, one after another, after another, can your love be depended on, counted on? Do people depend upon you because they know your love will cause you to flow towards them with the expression of that love? Which is something we're gonna see in a moment. That's the first thing. His love does not change. The second thing we see is that his love is not hidden. He loves to show us that he loves us. So in verse nine now, we're gonna camp out in verse nine and 10. This is where we really, I mean, we're gonna have about the next nine points just from these two verses, okay? So in verse nine, here's what we find. In this is love, in this the love of God was made, what's the word there, church? Manifest, that means visible. So what's gonna come afterwards is gonna be how he made it visible, but let's pause there and say that the first thing he's saying is, I didn't leave my love hidden, I showed it. I made it visible. What we can understand then about the love of God, church family, is that he wants you to know he loves you. He's not interested in keeping it hidden. He's not trying to keep it tucked away. He's not perhaps like some folks that you know where they say, you don't need me to tell you I love you. You know I love you. Can I just tell you, if those words have come out of your mouth, I love you, you're wrong. You need to express your love. You need to tell people your love. You need to show them your love. I know it might be hard for you. Can I say, in great care for you, I don't care. Love doesn't remain hidden. Not this kind of love. Love was made manifest. It was made visible. God's love for you did not stay hidden. He didn't want it to be hidden. He wanted it to be seen. He wanted you to know that you're loved. And in a moment, we're gonna see that he wants you to know you're loved so much that you're full of confidence. That's not to jump to like, that's the second to last point, okay? But he wants you to be so confident of his love for you that he didn't leave it hidden. Now, how did he then make it visible? What's the next point? So he made his love manifest. The next thing that we see about his love is that it resurrects. Now, you gotta follow me on this one because look what he says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us How was it made manifest? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live, there's the key word, that we might live through him. Now what he is saying there is that he expressed his love by causing Christ to come into the world so that we would be brought out of death and into life. And when he says he sent his son so that we might live, his only son, which we're gonna talk about in a moment, he is saying, I didn't just, he's not using that you would live in terms of how we use that word sometimes, or we mean, oh, we're talking about like a fuller life or a, a joy-producing life. Certainly his love has come to bring us those things, but don't go there first because the first thing he's saying is you were physically, you were spiritually dead in your rebellion against God and he raised you out of that death and into life. That's how powerful his love is. Is there any other kind of love that can resurrect from the dead? Because that's what John is saying. His love is a resurrecting love. It takes what is dead and it makes it alive. He sent his son into the world, moved by his love, and in the power of that love, he raised you from the dead. Now, what then is my love to be like? I can't resurrect with my love. Fair enough? 
You can't resurrect with your love. But when he resurrected us from the dead, the resurrection is the evidence of the power over sin and death. It is condemning sin and death. Sin, the consequence of that sin, of my rebellion against God, is eternal separation from God. And you and I need to grapple with that. That's the consequence of it. And so for his love to bring about a resurrection is to overcome the consequences of sin and then that consequence being death. So what does that mean about my love? My love can't resurrect anyone, but what it can do is point to the resurrection and point to the overcoming of sin and death. So my love must be pure. How pure is my love? Does it point to all that is good and holy or is there a lustful aspect to my love? Is there a self-centered aspect to my love? Is there anything low in my love or is my love of the highest quality, like God's love, full of purity? Young women, if men are pursuing you and they're pursuing you in such a way that they're seeking to satisfy their lustful desires with you, that is not the love of God. That is a cheap, cheap substitute. He designed you for better than that. Young men, if you make a woman the object of your lust and think you love her, you are settling for a cheap version of love yourself. Do not do it. Your love is to be a resurrecting love. It is to point to all that is pure and holy and righteous and away from what is death. Not only is his love a resurrecting love, let's look at the next point then. His love is eternal. Now, we already said it's unchanging. It doesn't ebb and flow, doesn't raise, doesn't lower. But this is something even more when we say it's eternal because the kind of life he came to give us, he sent his only son so that we might have life. What kind of life is that? It's not life for a time. It's not, it's not a better quality of life now. It is life forever. It is eternal. And so the thing we learn about God's love then is that the love that was directed towards us to redeem and resurrect will stay with us forever. There will never come a day where we are not the object of his love. That's incredible, yes? There will never come a day where you will not be, if you are in Christ, the object of God's great affection and love. There is no expiration date on it and there's no limit to it. So he is not like the milk in your fridge that you definitely should not drink after a certain point. There's no point where you go, oh, his love expired. It, it stopped. It ran out. The statute of limitations ended on his love. He's saying, no, no, no. I came to give you life. It's life forever. And that means my love will be upon you forever. I don't know if we can comprehend what that means. Forever, we will enjoy the perfect love of God lavished upon us. You're gonna die one day. You're gonna breathe your last. And if you're in Christ, you're gonna open your eyes on the other side of eternity in the presence of God. And you are going to experience what 1 Corinthians 13 says, you see now dimly as in a mirror. But then you will see face to face and you will experience the fullness of the love of God and it will never end. Every moment, every cell of your being, every synapse in your mind, every feeling and thought derived from and directed towards the love of God in Christ for you. That will be your eternal existence. And by the way, can I let you in on a little secret? Every once in a while, 
when we get to Costco and we buy those like acai, dark covered chocolates, you know what I'm talking about? They're good, but they're expensive. So I hide them from my children. I'm like, Amanda, they're in the whatever, I won't even tell you, because you might come to my house and want some. Because I'm stingy, I'm stingy with dark covered chocolate things. And so I put them up in the cupboard, I'm like, they're there, and when the kids go to bed, we'll have some, it'll be great. Because I don't want to run out. God's love will never run out. For it to be eternal means there's no, you're never, it's never gonna expire, and you're never going to be like, oh man, that's the last, that's the last one. Isn't that amazing? God's love is eternal. Now, not only is it eternal, it's also now verse 10. It's freely chosen. Look at what he says in verse 10. And this is, if there were one verse in the whole group that sort of summarized everything, this is the one. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. All right, so in that simple statement, in that one phrase, he's saying, all right, you wanna know what love is? Here it is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And there's at least three things there that we see, right? And a fourth that is the whole verse. Here's the first thing. It's freely chosen. When he says, not that we love God, but that he loved us, the first thing I want you to see there is that he chose to love you under no compulsion, There was nothing that necessitated his love. Nothing required him to love you. He chose to do it freely, and we want God to be free. God is under no compulsion at any time, any place, anywhere to do anything. He possesses all knowledge, all power, all wisdom. He does not depend for his existence on anyone else. Therefore, everything he does, he does because he delights to do it and determines it to be right, and no one can make him do anything and he chose to love. He did not choose, he did, was under no requirement. From eternity past, God existed in triune nature, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect loving union within himself. He did not create us and then set his love upon us because he needed someone to love. He had everything he needed within himself perfectly satisfied in loving union within himself. Everything about his nature could be satisfied without creating a single thing. And yet he did and then chose to set his love upon us. It's amazing. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. So number one, he freely chose. The second thing then related to it is his love is not contingent upon anything. So not only did he freely choose in his independence to love us, he also did not love us because we loved him first. He didn't base his love upon our love. He didn't look down the halls of time and go, you know what, Trent's gonna choose to love me one day, so I'll love him now, seeing that that's gonna happen, and then I'll base my love upon that love. That's not right at all. He says, no, no, you didn't love me first, I loved you first. And your love, all of it, is a response to my love. All that is love in me is only there because God loved me first. All my ability to love, all my capacity to love, all my understanding of what love is, all comes from God himself, who is love, we just learned, and chooses to pour that into me. I would understand or comprehend nothing of love. Those who do not believe 
still derive the very nature of their love from who God is. It gets twisted and turned by our sin, but it is common grace that God plants the ability to love in any human person. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There are certain aspects of his very nature that he plants. He, we are his image bearers, and therefore he plants the ability in those of us who believe and those of us who don't to express certain aspects of his nature, love being one of them. And it's his mercy and his grace that he does so. His love doesn't depend upon my love for him. doesn't depend upon your love for him. It is not contingent in any way. So let me ask this question then. Is your love like his love? We said with each point, we've got to ask that question. Is your love contingent? Does it rise and fall based upon the performance of those you love? When they do well, you show love. When they don't do well, you don't show love. You withhold love. Or is your love uncontingent, like God's love? One of the best pieces of advice I ever got going into marriage was someone said to me, Trent, as a husband, you must love your wife the way God commands you to love your wife, whether or not she loves you the way God commands her to. Your love cannot be contingent upon whether or not she's doing her part. It must be only based upon the fact that God has loved you in Christ and commanded you then as a response to his love to love your wife. So love your wife, whether or not she keeps up her end of the bargain in every way. And that's good counsel. It was, it's good counsel to husbands and wives. The next thing we see in verse 10 is that God's love takes initiative. It initiates. So not only is it freely chosen, not only is it not contingent, it is also taking initiative. And by this, I mean when he says, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he did what then? And because of that love, he sent his son. That word sent then means that he took action. God's love takes action, it takes initiative. He doesn't wait, he doesn't sit back on his hands, he takes initiative to bring an active love to us. What is most needed by us, his love brings about. That's what Romans 8.32 is talking about when it says, he who did not uh, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying his love comes towards you in constant flowing action. He's not withholding his love. So then the question for us, does my love take initiative? Do I get excited thinking about creative ways to meet the needs of those that I love? Those that God has put in my path. What can I do? How can I do it? Isn't it fun to have God impress someone on your heart and then without anyone stating a need at all, figuring out ways to love them? It's isn't that fun? Yeah, it was just, all right, we're gonna have to back up. It's so fun. Why? Not because it makes me look really good, but because it's amazing to be the conduit of God's love. There's nothing like it. To be the one through whom God chooses to express his love and show it to someone else, and when you feel like he fills you with a creative understanding of how to do it, uh, how to meet a need that maybe you didn't even know was there, but you're just taking initiative towards others. He takes action in his love for us. Now look at what he sent his son to do. Go back to verse 10 again. Still there in verse 10, just turning that diamond now, looking at every part. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Well, what did he send him to do as the great expression of his love? To be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that he took the penalty for our sin. 
So what we learn is that his love is an atoning love. It's a love that saves us from our sin and makes us right. It gives us the consequences taken off of us for our sin. His love is an atoning love. Now, the question then for you and I is, does our love stay with people? I can't atone for your sin and you can't atone for mine. Only Jesus can do that. So I don't have the kind of love that can bring atonement. Just like I can't resurrect with my love and neither can you. But what I can do is when you're in the consequences for your sin, I can take you by the hand and stay with you in them. I can walk with you through the consequences that your sin has sometimes brought upon you. Now, can we be honest for a moment and recognize that too often we're like that older brother in the story of the prodigal son who looks at his younger brother and goes, he should be getting what he deserves and I'm angry that the father is giving him such lavish gifts right now because we think you deserve to be punished for what you did. You deserve to bear the consequences for that. Sometimes sin brings difficulty into our life, right? So the question for us is when that happens to those we love, do we walk with them in it? I can't make it right, only Jesus can, but you know what I can do is I can stay with you in it and I can point you to how great the love of God is in it and his atoning power. Or are we thinking you're getting what you deserved when you've paid the price, then come back to me and we'll talk about being back in relationship. We are meant to show an atoning kind of love. And the, other, the additional thing to that atonement is when he says he made his son to be the propitiation for our sins, he doesn't just atone for our sins. In other words, take the penalty on himself so that the sins are paid for. He then does the other side of that, the completion of it. He forgives. God's love is a forgiving love is one of the things that we can see in verse 10 here. It's a forgiving love. Do you know that when you go to God and ask for forgiveness for a sin that you've done, a thing you've thought, a thing you've acted out that you know wasn't right, you know it was sin, and when you do it, do you know that it's not hard for God to forgive you? He's not sitting there going, I gotta do this again. He's not angry that he has to forgive you. He doesn't hold on to it and go, I really don't want to, but I guess I have to. That was the whole point of sending Jesus, so I guess I have to. God delights to forgive you. He's overjoyed to forgive you. It brings him pleasure to forgive you, to see the blood of his son cover your sin, to see you come in confession and repentance and say, help me, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. He lavishes forgiveness on you at that instant. He doesn't go, give, give, me a, give me an hour or two. You feel bad a little longer. And then we'll talk about some forgiveness, okay? But you better feel bad for a while first. How many of you approach God that way? I'm not even gonna ask for forgiveness until it's been a couple days because I gotta feel bad. I gotta stay, I gotta feel like, ugh. I really gotta beat myself up for a while. We should feel horrible about our sin. But his forgiveness isn't based upon what you feel. You come to him in confession and repentance and you, you beg for a greater experience of repentance and confession, but he lavishes his forgiveness on you right then. Praise God. Now here's a question for us. How forgiving is our love? 
How quick are we, how eager are we to forgive? When someone comes to us and says, I, I sinned against you, do we go, I don't know. Or are we so eager to forgive that we would say, oh, I've just been waiting. I've been waiting for you to come. I've been waiting, I've been eager. Yes, of course you forgive, I forgive it freely. I've been forgiven so much. I heap forgiveness upon you. Of course, it's yours. And if it happens again, I'll forgive again. Not just seven times, but 70 times seven. I heard that somewhere. Oh, yes. So much so, I'm so eager to forgive you that I did all the parts of forgiveness I could, I could do before you even came to me. I was hoping you would come in, in repentance and confession so that I could give the full measure of forgiveness to you, but I already let go of any desire to see you punished. I already, before the Lord, relinquished it and let it go. I've already done all those pieces of forgiveness because I was so eager to forgive you. And now here you are, and oh, I've just been waiting. Yes, yes. How do you think you would feel if someone reacted that way to you asking for forgiveness versus, okay, I forgive you. There's a difference between those two things, right? Oh, that we would have a kind of love that is eager to forgive because that's God's kind of love. Do you see that? Now, verse 10, if all of that, if you were to encapsulate all, every phrase, we just went phrase by phrase by phrase, if you were to encapsulate all of that, you would have then what I think is the sum total of what this verse, if you had to pick one thing that the verse is trying to say about God's love, it's this. His love is costly. It cost him greatly. We didn't love him. He loved us. How did he show it? By sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. All of that says he paid in a massive cost to show his love for us. And by the way, earlier when it said he sent his only son in verse nine, do you see that he's not, he's not trying to say, hey, by the way, I wanna make sure you have good Trinitarian theology and make sure you know there's only one son and there's one father and there's one spirit. There's not like 10 sons and I, I just don't want, he's emphasizing the costliness of his love. I sent my only son, the one from whom eternity passed, I have taken perfect pleasure in. I love him more than I love anything. He is the apple of my eye. I delight in my son. Everything about him is perfect. There's no one I love like I love my son, but I love you as well, and in my love for you, I have sent my only son so that you might have life, so that you might have forgiveness and have your sins atoned for, and you'll have that love forever. What he's saying is, my love costs me greatly. He wants you to know the costliness of his love so that you'd comprehend it. That speaks to its value and its merit and its worth. So friends, then the question for us, what cost are we willing to pay to show love to one another and to the world, to our neighbors? Is there anything that you know if God required it of you as an expression of love that you would be unwilling to give it? Does that question make sense? Imagine whatever you might hold in your hands, whether it's a, you know, something about yourself or something that you possess, a relationship that you have, and if God says, I, I, I need that, I want that, not I need that, I want that, I want you to give that so that 
someone else would know how great my love is. I want you to give that up. What is it that you would not give? What cost would you not pay to demonstrate and express the love of God? His love is costly. Ours must be costly too. The next thing we see, we made it through verse 10. Good job. There's three more now. Oh, we're, you guys, we're flying through this. Go to verse 12. So we already said verse 11 then says, if God loved us this way, then we ought also to love one another. And then go, well, look at what he says in verse 12 then. <clears throat> no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So here's what he's saying there. God cannot be seen, but we make him visible when we love, right? We, we show people what he's like when we love. That's essentially what he's saying there. And then he says, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, this word here doesn't literally mean that on this side of heaven, you're gonna have a perfect demonstration of love, that you're gonna be perfect at loving. What it does mean is that there's a growing completion to God's love. There's a growing maturity to God's love. So the next thing we learn about God's love is that it matures. Now, it doesn't mature in that his love changes or grows in its quality, but it matures in us, in our understanding of it and in our ability to express it. So here's the beauty. We can become more loving. His love grows to completion. In fact, the next verses, uh, verses like 15 and 16, are gonna talk about things like, hey, paying attention to the Spirit, staying connected to the Spirit, making a confession of the person of Christ. These are ways that he abides in you and his love becomes perfected. Now, I, I don't have time today to unpack all of that, but <clears throat> all of that fits under this category. His love matures. It grows. So here's the question. Do you feel more loving today than you were a year ago? Do you feel more loving with a God-stained kind of love now than you were a year ago? You and I were meant to be constantly growing in our comprehension of how much God loves us and in our expression of that love to others. I'll never reach perfection, but here I'm told that there's a perfecting nature to this love. Do you see that, yes? There's a perfecting nature to his love that it matures and grows. I hope, here's the great thing. Imagine that we get the privilege as a church body of living our lives together, connected to one another for the next 50 years, right? Wouldn't it be cool to think, now that, look, there should be constantly new people coming in, but here's what happens. If a church family is so saturated with a maturing love, then new people who come in, they just get swept up into that. And they start maturing into that love too. So can you imagine a place that's just like a love maturing factory? Where just like every time we're together, every time we have life group, every time we pray together, every time we sit under God's word together, we are just growing more and more and more mature in our comprehension of love, in our surety of love, and in then our expression of love to each other. What would that place be like? Just every week by week by week, I mean, Goodness gracious. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why we plant ourselves at a church, right? And we say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for life in Christ together with this body of people. I'm gonna, we're gonna bear one another's sins. We're gonna put up with a lot of stuff. You know, we're gonna 
fall and stumble, but we're gonna keep falling and stumbling forward into the love and forgiveness and grace of God. So it's a maturing love. Now, as I said, after that, he then talks more about how that matures, but we're gonna go to verse 17 now because he's gonna turn a little bit then from talking about those things. And in verse 17, here's the next aspect of God's love. We learn that it gives us confidence, that God's love gives us confidence. By this is love perfected with us, so there's that maturing again, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so, so, so also are we in this world. What he's saying there is that there's gonna come a day of judgment for every person that has ever lived, and when that day comes, our sins will be laid bare, every one of them. Every thought, every action, every feeling, everything we've ever done that was not in line with the very nature of God, we will come face to face with. That's a daunting thought, isn't it? Can I tell you something? Not a single one of those things on display will be able to condemn you before God. Not a single one of them. Every single one will be marked paid in full because of the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. If you have turned to him, none of those things will in any way separate you from the love of God. And you will in that moment know in a deeper way, in a more profound way, not even all my rebellion, all my sin, all my low thoughts, not a single one of them could separate me from your love. How great is your love? How remarkable are you? And you will celebrate and rejoice and worship God. You'll have greater fuel to worship God because you'll see, you and I will see for the first time, the full measure of forgiveness and what it really meant. What it really meant for him to bring that forgiveness. But what he's saying, friends, is that you can have confidence now because of the love of God, that when that day comes, you will not face punishment. You will not face condemnation. You will be delivered. Do you know that God wants you to be confident of his love for you? You don't have to walk around wondering, does he love me? Or sort of saying, ah, I'm not sure. Or, you know, I, I don't know if anyone can truly be sure what will happen on that day. No, he's telling you now, I love you. I've made it visible, I've sent my son for you. Then you can have confidence that when that day comes, at the end of all things, you will stand before me as one justified and right with me because of what I have done. You can be confident. And that's not arrogance. It's not arrogance to say God has done something. It's arrogance to believe that you have done something that has then earned merit before God. You and I have not done that, but he has done it. And now here's the last attribute of God's love that this text unpacks for us. His love casts out fear. His love casts out fear. In verse 19 and 21, he's gonna go on to remind us again, love each other, love each other, love each other. But before he does that, he does one more thing in verse 18. He says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In other words, the more love matures, the more it grows to completion, the more it drives out fear. Those two things don't exist together. They're in opposition to one another. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So what he's saying, church family, is that looking at that day of judgment and saying you can be confident 
you can be confident because his love then casts off fear. You don't have to fear. If the ultimate fear would be separation from God forever on that day, and that can't exist because his love drives that fear out, then you also know that his love drives out every lesser fear. Every lesser fear, it pushes out. So I love the word for cast out there. It's this Greek word, balo, and it means to throw something away with no regard for where it goes. It's as if he's saying, I take that fear and I chuck it in the garbage can and I don't care about it. I despise that stuff, I hate it, I get rid of it. My love casts it out. It takes it away. So friends, Christians experience fear. That happens. So he's not saying you should never ever feel fear, but what he is saying is you have the love of God to combat that fear, whatever it is and wherever it is. And if the ultimate thing to be afraid of cannot touch you, then no lesser thing can touch you either. You can trust and you can go back again and again to the love of God. So the question for all of us, is our love like God's love? Does it help get rid of fear in those? Does my love have such a stability and a consistency uh, and a purity to it that it helps others wrestle with their fear and put it away? Does my love help remove fear or does it induce more anxiety perhaps because There's this sense that that person's love is contingent upon my performance and therefore I feel anxious and fearful because it might go away or does my love have such a stability to it that it helps cast out fear? If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So in this text where we're called to love each other, called to love our neighbors, we are reminded of the depth and the height and the fullness of God's love. My prayer for you all week and continues to be and will continue to be that God would take something of this massively valuable text and use it to impart to you exactly what you need in an understanding of God's love so that you would grow to completion, to maturity, to fullness in the understanding and the expression of that love. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, our prayer is that you would take your word and settle it in our hearts in a way that goes beyond comprehension, beyond words. We thank you for your great love. We know that we don't fully comprehend it, but would you give us power? As Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, would you give us power to grasp it? Power to grasp its height, power to grasp its depth, power to grasp every aspect of it to the greatest degree that we possibly can and then to to live in the expression of that love, to be full of it more and more and more. Bring it to completion, to maturity in us. We pray it, Lord Jesus, for your glory, not our own, for yours. In your mighty name we pray, amen.